This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started in a few moments here. Um, If you weren't here for the first presentation, we covered, um, really, I should have called it uh, the Christian worldview because we uh, shared um, what we have in common or what we share with our evangelical uh, brothers and sisters as far as uh, a worldview. This session is going to be dealing more with uh, uh, what's more uniquely Adventist. Right, and there's some additional uh, components uh, that we add on in terms of formulating one's worldview. And um, before we have a word of prayer, I do want to share that that some of the aspects or components of the worldview, the Adventist worldview, uh, will actually be covered in more detail uh, in our panel discussion that's going to take place on Friday and also on Sabbath, where we're going to discuss recent attacks on the Adventist understanding of the remnant and also final generation theology. And so we have a really, I'm really excited about that because we have a really good group of panelists. And so just keep in mind that that those two sessions are really in addition to uh, what we cover here uh, today or or this morning. So anyway, let's go ahead and start with a a word of prayer, and then we will uh, delve right into this. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much once again for the gift of the Word of God. We thank you for Um, Also the gift of the spirit of prophecy, the the word of God, and and also for giving us minds that are able to comprehend uh, the truth and and the words and the concepts that you would have us to understand and to know. We also want to pray for your spirit to be with us, to uh, impact our hearts and our minds, and help us to understand the things that you would have us to understand And we thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Adventist worldview and aspects or components that are more distinctive. Now, so we're coming at this from the perspective of a worldview. So I'm not going to be addressing every doctrine that is distinctive from other denominations. That's not the point of a worldview. And um, the other thing that I might mention um, is I want to provide a, a broad overview of what an Adventist worldview looks like. And hold on one second. Let me get my, my, my clicker here going. One second. All right. So the objective will be to provide a broad overview of an Adventist worldview, not every particular doctrine. 
the Adventist doctrines and beliefs that make up the key features of the Adventist worldview are going to be assumed. So in other words, because this is a topic, this, or this discussion involves a, a worldview discussion, I'm not going to prove every single point with a Bible text and so forth. That's going to be assumed. You can find, uh, if you have questions on that in, in, in other sessions, in other meetings, uh, you can go to Audioverse, uh, but that will not be my personal objective this morning. So some of the features will be assumed. And um, also not... And I mentioned that part. So as we start, I just want to mention also that, um, uh, well, let me just go ahead and, and begin. So we're, let's start with a little review, right? We, we looked at Nancy Piercy and this individual, this congressional chief of staff who lost his faith at an evangel- evangelical college because his professors failed to relate uh, their subject matter within a biblical construct or within a, a biblical frame uh, of mind or perspective. Okay, so Bill Wichterman left the church, ended up coming back. He read his way, studied his way back to Christianity, reading C.S. Lewis and others. And I, I really, I really uh, appreciated um, his experience because... It mirrors an experience similar to my own. I, at one point, um, lost my faith attending an Adventist uh, uh, institution. By the way, I I attended the seminary. I ultimately received my uh, master's from Southern Adventist University, uh, both great institutions, and and, uh, God is doing amazing things through those institutions. And, but when I was there, I was at the seminary, I just want to share this uh, struggle that I had. When we started and began studying the process in which the New Testament canon, the books that we have in the New Testament, how they were formulated, the historical process in which uh, it, the, the New Testament came to be the New Testament, um, I, it was presented from, uh, the, from purely a historical perspective. And so as you look at it from a historical perspective, you look at various individuals that, that formulated lists, you know, and, and some of the lists you have, you have first John, first and second John included, but, 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 you know, uh, but the gospel John is excluded. And, and then you have further on down, another church father includes uh, certain books and omits others. And so when you study and look and, and, and observe the historical process by which the New Testament became the New Testament, you know, I, it, I started having a lot of doubts. Like it seemed altogether a very human process. Where was God's hand where was his providence uh, in, the de- in the formulation of the New Testament canon? And I had a lot of questions. I had uh, a lot of doubts. And, and I'm, not, I'm not blaming the, the professor or whatever. I, 
I was just going through a time also on a personal level where I was struggling with things. And so all these things ended up where, where I ended up leaving the seminary for, for a little while, and, and I lost confidence uh, in Scripture. Now, and, and when you lose confidence in Scripture, it's, it's, it's a very scary, scary feeling. And I felt very lost, and I didn't know where I could place my confidence in. All the things that I had learned uh, as a, as a young, from a young boy all the way to uh, my time there uh, was all called into question. And it took, it took uh, several years, several years for me to, to find my way back to God. And, uh, and I'm not going to go into that whole story it would it would take up the, this entire session. But I do praise God that he ultimately brought me back. And it wasn't, it, it was a intellectual, uh, uh, there were intellectual components, but it was also very much a, a heart thing. And, uh, and I praise God that he did ultimately bring me back. And by the way, if you do have questions and, and struggles with the authority of Scripture and the reliability of Scripture, the trustworthiness of Scripture. Uh, there are a lot of materials out there that you can uh, go and, and find. One, one, one place I would highly suggest that you uh, um, go and, and make, you know, save, make it a favorite on your webpage is the BRI, the, what I call, what's called the Biblical Research Institute. It's, an, it's a segment or organization of the General Conference, right? It's, it's essentially the theological wing of the General Conference, and they deal with many of these issues. So if you Google Biblical Research Institute and Seventh-day Adventist, their website will pop up and there are a plethora of, of materials there that deal with subjects uh, like the one that I have brought up here and, and, and many, many others. And I would highly encourage you to go there and read that. By the way, not many people uh, actually know about the Biblical Research Institute. And one of the challenges, in, and if there's anyone from the BRI and the General Conference listening to this, uh, what we need to do is a better job of engaging the resources that our church has and, and, and making it um, more easily accessible to the common person like you and I. I know about it because I love theology. I study theology. I read about it all the time. And so the BRI is a, is, is a place that I go to and read a lot. But we, we need to do more of that. Yes, Jonathan. Okay, so Jonathan Walter um, has just mentioned that the BRI has a booth here. They have books uh, that you can purchase. They deal with hermeneutics uh, and, and worldview and, and other theological issues that I would highly encourage you to, to read and, and go to. We also looked at this Christian foundation that interviewed college non-believers and, and how and, and why they left re religion and these surprising themes that, that emerged. We found that, uh, that they had attended church at one time, these atheists, but for some reason or another, they had left church. 
Uh, one of the reasons stated was that the mission and message of their churches were very vague. And, and I do believe that we as an Adventist church, and I'm including myself there, we can do a much better job in connecting the dots, right? In connecting the dots, in, in providing a worldview that's comprehensive for our young people, and we need to do that at the academy level, the high school level, and also especially at the college uh, level. One of the reasons why I believe that you have many of these mission colleges like AFCO, like Arise, you have, you have Peace in, in England, you have SALT, you know, all these mission colleges. One of the reasons why they're so successful is I believe that they're, they're filling that niche. You go there, you really are immersed into Adventism. It's, it's kind of like, uh, how many of you have been to a mission college before? Okay, so I do see a show of hands. Isn't it like, in, and I worked at Weimar, I taught at Weimar for a number of years, and AFCO was, was located there, and how they described it was it's like you know, putting your mouth over a fire hydrant and then turning it on. Is it, was that your experience? Uh, because you're just, you're just, you're just like you know, wallowing in Adventism, right? But when you come out, I mean, you are, you are ready to change the world, right? You're, you're, you're enthused, you're inspired, you want to do uh, the work of God, and, um, and, 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 and the mission colleges are fulfilling that role. Campus, uh, the institution for which I work for that's a part of the Michigan Conference, uh, we also uh, have a ministry that does that, but our particular uh, audience are students that are, are, are seeking to uh, win uh, souls on public campuses, on secular campuses. And so that's part of the work that, that I do uh, at campus. And we have a one-year uh, program that we also uh, offer on a yearly basis. But that's one of the reasons why uh, these mission colleges are so popular, because perhaps in many of our schools and institutions, the mission and the message is vague. And they're, they're fulfilling that niche. And I would highly encourage you to attend one of these institutions if you want to get uh, more grounded in our distinctives and in our message. Um, I've kind of adapted uh, a quote that we read earlier uh, and put it from an uh, Adventist perspective or reframed it. The purpose of Adventism is about saving souls. So I kind of switched that around a little bit. It is. That is our mission. But it is more than that, or it includes more than that, or, it, or something else should be incorporated into that. And that is, it's also about rescuing minds. You know, the concept of the sealing, a very uh, uniquely Adventist concept, the sealing, is a settling into the truth to a place where you cannot be shaken or moved. That's, it involves a, a heart uh, transformation, but also an intellectual appreciation of the truth that you're learning and gaining. Faith in the absence of intelligence isn't really faith. And in, in the book Steps to Christ, Ellen White says that, she, that God gives us sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. And uh, just um, we, we looked at this quote or uh, this text in Luke chapter 10. 
that we also want to emphasize as we uh, often have neglected within our church. We, we've emphasized the, the heart, the soul, and the strength, but we need, need to do a better job in, in providing an intellectual backbone to our worldview so that when we go out into the secular workplace and secular universities, we're grounded um, in the Word of God. So the importance of the Adventist worldview, again, the worldview will be your ultimate explainer. Ultimately, it'll provide your meaning and direction and a sense of destiny uh, to your life. We talked a little bit about, uh, from the Adventist perspective, how uh, your identity as the remnant of, rem- of Revelation 12:17 gives you a, a clear sense of who you are in this time uh, and in this place in Earth's history. We have a mission to take the everlasting gospel to the world. Our message is the three angels' messages. Um, it also helps you, as we uh, mentioned, to live a life consistent within a biblical framework, and I added one additional one. Having a worldview also glues individuals together towards haystack, not, not towards haystacks, towards community. <laughs> towards, I, I kind of jumped ahead because I have some notes here, and what I was going to say is it's not, what binds us together is not haystacks, right? Uh, it's not just about haystacks and potlucks and veggie burgers. By the way, a friend of mine uh, his name is Jeff Tatarchuk. How many of you love, like, um, you food truck food? You like food truck food? I mean, that's kind of like an in thing now, you know, where, where, where you follow these food trucks on Facebook. This is kind of a, I think it's like a millennial thing, right? And, like, and, and these trucks, they move from location to location, and you follow them on Facebook, and you go, and you, you can get, like, kimchi tacos. Did you know that? They make tacos made with, and they put kimchi inside. It's like immersion of Mexican and Korean, like Israel Ramos and Judy, you know, it's, they're like together, and, and, and you eat it, and it tastes good, and uh, it's a wonderful thing. By the way, going back, I kind of got sidetracked. My friend Jeff Tatarchuk, he's putting together a food truck called the Haystack. How many of you have heard of that? He also did a big event at the GC, try to break the Guinness World Record for most haystacks eaten at one event, and they missed it by, I think, by a couple hundred, maybe a thousand or something. Uh, but anyway, he, he's going to traverse the United States with this uh, haystack truck. I told him that he has to come to East Lansing, and I'll tell all our Adventist friends to go and eat there. So, but anyway... What glues us together as Adventists, it's not just haystacks, it's a, it's a worldview. It's a way of viewing the world and the events that are taking place in our society. Having a worldview will shape our opinions. I talked earlier in the last uh, uh, meeting about guns, how Adventists have shifted uh, their position on the notion of guns. And I'm, I'm not putting a value judgment. If you own a gun, that's fine. If you don't, that's, that's cool. I'm not going to judge you. But we, we, as a church, once really emphasized the, the non-combatant status of Adventists. And we took a more pacifist approach to war and so forth. But that, that, is, that has shifted over the past several years. 
um, because we're obtaining our worldview more from the media, perhaps, than we are from the Word of God. We talked a little bit about the environment. When you talk about at, uh, the environment, I've talked about the environment with many Adventists, and it's often shaped within the context of uh, the Illuminati and some kind of um, uh, a conspiracy theory to take over the world. And, and hey, you know, you can believe what you believe, and I, I'll respect that. You can still go to heaven and, and believe in a conspiracy theory. But, but we also talked about how the Bible does inform us on how we should, inf- how we should, in- how we should view uh, the environment. That, that when God created us, he planted a garden of Eden. The Bible says in Genesis 2.15 that God took the man, put him in the garden to, to work it, to keep it, to maintain it, to take care of it. And so there are biblical, um, there is a biblical uh, precedent for taking care of this earth and our world and God's creation. The Adventist worldview, as we shared earlier, is best expressed through the narrative. We talked about the creation, uh, the fall and redemption and restoration, concepts and events that we share with the broader evangelical community that helps us and, and gives us a lens through which we view evil and, 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 and various uh, aspects that we'll be dealing with later. But I want to talk... Now, as far as the uniquely Adventist uh, worldview and the components uh, that entail the Adventist worldview. So when you look at evangelicals, uh, the literature, evangelical apologists, they will typically uh, begin the narrative with creation. Also, when they, when they, when they discuss, for example, the evil and misery uh, in this world, they'll emphasize the fall. And that's one area that, that Adventists uh, differ in terms of our point of emphasis. We do agree with evangelicals in explaining the evil in the world with the fall, but we go back a step further uh, with the, the fall of Lucifer, right? So our biblical narrative starts not with creation, but with the fall of Lucifer. And we, the, the, the texts that we utilize uh, are Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19, and Isaiah 14. Uh, for sake of time, we're not going to read those verses, but those are the classic texts that we have used to describe Lucifer and his fall. By the way, Dr. Davidson of the seminary, I, I do want to mention that Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19, uh, many, uh, I would say most Christian theologians, and I'm talking Bible-believing theologians, do not equate uh, Ezekiel 28 with the fall of Lucifer. And so uh, I want you to be aware of that. And so that has received some criticism. I, I want to point you to a, a, a book that was published recently by the Biblical Research Institute. I know, I'm pretty sure they have it at the BRI uh, because it's a, a newly published book where Dr. Davidson of the Old Testament Department at the seminary has done an excellent job of defending the historic Adventist position uh, of Ezekiel 28 being uh, the fall of, describing the fall of Lucifer. 
And so for those of you who want to delve a little bit deeper into that, you can certainly do so. I want to read a quote here from the great controversy. So the Adventist narrative begins with the fall of Lucifer. Sin originated with him, who next to Christ had been most honored of God and who stood highest in power and glory among the inhabitants of heaven. Pride in his own glory nourished the desire for supremacy. Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discord of discontent among the angels. So one theme uh, that is the, that 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 encompasses the Adventist narrative is the great controversy, what I call the meta narrative, the great controversy meta narrative. Frank Holbrook in the Handbook of Seventh Day Adventist Theology uh, says a worldview featuring a great, in, in describing the great controversy, states this, a worldview featuring a great cosmic controversy between God and Satan is a hallmark of Adventist thought. In Ellen White's own words, in Cole Porter Ministry, page 126, the great controversy contains the story of the past, the present, and the future. Okay? And so... I want to summarize the great controversy uh, in a nutshell. So our meta-narrative begins with the fall of Lucifer and concludes after the millennium when Satan and his angels and the wicked are destroyed, right? So that involves the second death uh, and also ultimately where sin and and wicked and, and and, and all the wicked, including Lucifer, are destroyed forever, once and for all, right? That concludes the great controversy. The evangelical community does not have that perspective, um, uh, by and large. The great controversy also concerns Satan's allegations against God's character, his law, and his government. And I would add to that, that one additional element, and that is the claim that God's law cannot be kept. And we're going to be addressing that on Friday and on Sabbath in our panel discussion when we discuss final generation theology. So the allegations of Satan against God's character, his law, and government. So by the way, the, the best way I can describe it is, is this. All this is going on, this, this grand battle that began with the fall of Lucifer is going on, taking place in our world, this battle between, between Christ our Savior, Jesus and God, and, and Satan, uh, who was formerly Lucifer, and, and it's over uh, these allegations that, of, of God's character, his law, and government. Okay? So it's like... It's like having a window into, into a perspective that is beyond our planet and beyond our world. It's like being an ant, right? It's like being an ant and understanding why tires run over you every day, right? Or it's like being an ant and, and, and it dawns on you why footsteps 
tromp on your end pile, right? It's kind of like an explanation of, of something beyond your little pile, right? This little earth uh, that we have and live upon. And so the Great Controversy is, is a very fascinating study. By the way, how many of you have read the book Great Controversy? So a lot of hands. Okay, so if you haven't read it, I would highly encourage you to read that book. The, another component of the Great Controversy, there's a battle being waged for the allegiance of all sentient beings, both in this world and the worlds beyond. Now, our evangelical brothers and sisters will, will uh, incorporate into their worldview this component, right, that there is a battle being waged between God and Satan at a certain level, but they don't, they don't factor in the universe and the cosmos, the world beyond, the other, the other planets, the angels, and so forth, and that God, when he made decisions, he also had them in mind. Right, that the accusations leveled against him, right, were leveled at, uh, were were communicated to the angels and all the other created beings were were observers of of this phenomenon. And as they were looking on, God, when He made the decision to to have loose to 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 prolong Lucifer's life, right, He had in mind the the, the questions and the thoughts of all created beings. That is a perspective that is not shared, uh, by and large, with the broader evangelical community. Very unique to Adventism. The controversy culminates at the end of time uh, over loyalty to God's law, the Sabbath. This is a huge, pivotal component of the Adventist worldview. In the, in the book, Desire of Ages, the chapter, it is finished. The warfare against God's law, begun, begun in heaven, will be continued to the end of time. Every man will be tested. Obedience or disobedience is the question to be decided by the whole world. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. There will be but two classes. Right? So the Sabbath plays a huge role in our worldview. Another huge component, and I've, I've discussed it somewhat, uh, a huge component of the Adventist worldview is this notion of God's character, his name, his law will one day be vindicated. Right, And I, I shouldn't say one day be vindicated. Certainly it was vindicated to a large measure at the cross. Right, uh, In the book, uh, Desire of Ages, in the chapter It Is Finished, uh, Ellen White makes that very clear, that God was vindicated uh, at the cross. But it was not completed. It was not, uh, the, the, vin the vindication process was not completed. And by the way, Ultimate vindication of God will not uh, uh, be completed in its finality until after the millennium and uh, after uh, New Jerusalem comes down and, and, and the wicked are forever eradicated. 
So um, just keep that in mind. If you read the final chapter in Great Controversy, it's very insightful uh, what she has to say about the ultimate vindication of God. So God is ultimately vindicated uh, through various uh, components. Number one, the, the life of Jesus uh, and the cross, right? The life of Jesus and the cross. Uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68, the plan of redemption had a broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It says, it was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded. But it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe, right? To this result of his great sacrifice, its influence upon the intelligences of other worlds as well as upon man, it would justify God and his Son in their dealings with the rebellion of Satan, it would establish the perpetuity of the law of God and would reveal the nature and the results of sin. By the way, in the, in the chapter, It is Finished, she, she speaks of how the angels, as they're observing the crucifixion of Jesus, stand in horror that, that Lucifer, once an angel, would, would, would go to such an extent as to crucify the Son of God. And, and, uh, and to a, a large extent, it settled in their minds um, and vindicated God's character, his name, as Satan was exposed uh, in his actions. God is also um, vindicated in his just dealings in cosmic history. In the book, Craig Controversy, the controversy ended. God's wisdom, his justice, and his goodness will stand fully vindicated. It will be seen that all his dealings in the great controversy have been conducted with respect to the eternal good of his people and the good of all the worlds that he created. So, uh, and by the way, this is the, chap- the, the last chapter of Great Controversy where ultimate vindication takes place. Part of that entails the, the panoramic scene. Uh, the, I don't know how God is going to do it, where, where there's going to be a panoramic television set, if you will, where everyone on planet Earth, both the redeemed and the wicked, will observe the history of the great controversy. And at its conclusion, Satan himself will conclude that God is just in his verdict uh, upon him and the evil that he has committed. So, number four, uh, Satan will be exposed for who he is. That's another way that God is ultimately vindicated is also his just judgment or justice. By the way, justice or judgment, it's not something that you and I, when you think of justice and judgment, how many of you get nice, does it evoke nice feelings of comfort and and feelings of happiness and peace and security? I mean, it should, by the way, it should, because we have Jesus, right, who stands in our stead, uh, who 
uh, imputes his righteousness. Ellen White says that when God sees us, he does not see us, but, but he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. And, um, and, and praise God for that gospel. But the justice and the judgment is critical to the vindication. I want to read, this is a, a non-Avenist author, but he raises a very interesting point um, that I think we need to consider in terms of how uh, justice vindicates the character of God. And he raises this question. He says this. He says, God may forgive evil done in the past, but the evil was done to the Jews in the Holocaust, to the murdered man and his family, to the rape victim, to the family decimated by a drunk driver, the relatives of those killed by a terrorist terrorist bomb. What right... Has God to say that this evil can somehow be wiped away so that it appears not to exist anymore? Is this not simply another way of belittling evil? Making it appear that it really, that it isn't really important as all that. And what right has God to say that he forgives the offender when it is Joe Smith, not God, who has uh, really been hurt. By the way, we are going to delve into this topic when we address the subject of, of, of evil and God. How an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God could permit evil. We're going to go uh, delve into that more in depth. But the answer to this question that, that N.T. Wright raises uh, is dealt with uh, on the basis of the judgment. Okay, uh, And justice plays a huge role in that. The wicked, this is great, the great controversy, the wicked receive their recompense in the earth. Some are destroyed as in a moment, while others suffer many days. All are punished, and notice what it says here, according to their deeds. So God does not belittle those wrongs and those offenses that there will be justice one day. And by the way, that is necessary and imperative for, for, for God to ultimately be vindicated. And I'm, gonna, uh, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not going to explain it in full. You'll have to come. This is my way of hooking you for that meeting. But I really will develop that thought much further in um, tomorrow, or the meeting this afternoon. Satan is made to suffer not only for his own rebellion, but for all the sins which he has caused. In the cleansing flames, the wicked are at last destroyed, root and branch, Satan the root, his followers the branches. The full penalty of the law has been visited, right? The rapist. And the terrorist, uh, justice will be enacted. The full penalty of the law will be visited. The demands of justice will be met. And heaven and earth beholding will declare the righteousness of Jehovah. And so um, I know those are very uh, 
to, to many minds, very challenging thoughts. And, um, and it's something that, that you and I uh, have to sit down and pause and, and consider uh, as we read statements such as these. Adventists conclude the cosmic controversy after the millennium, as I mentioned before, with the second death and the resettlement of the earth. What are some of the implications of incorporating the great controversy worldview? Well, number one, uh, it provides a theodicy. What I mean by a theodicy is a rationale for the existence and the continuation of evil, right? Uh, The great controversy perspective does that, and I'll explain that this afternoon. It also provides a perspective on your personal life in terms of your ultimate meaning and your purpose. It provides a unique window into the logic and mind of God, though limited in his dealings with created beings. So as you're like that ant, and you understand why why, ants, why those tires like run over you and why the footsteps tr- trounce on you every once in a while, but obviously you don't understand everything. You don't understand that he's going to work and that he works at a law firm and he has to go there every morning at 8 and return at 9. You don't understand the, the, the full picture, right? And we as limited human beings, of course, uh, will never uh, fully attain that complete knowledge, at least not until we get to heaven We'll have a better understanding of that. Having the great controversy meta-narrative also provides the ultimate meaning of human history. And the great controversy is, is played out at the end of time. So, so in this narrative, we narrow down to the times that we're living in right now, right? And there's an, what we call an eschatological component, an end-of-time end of narrative that you and I as Adventists have and have incorporated into our worldview. It's based on the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, where we see there our identity in Revelation 12, 17, that we are the, the remnant with a special mission to take the everlasting gospel to the world with a message, the three angels' messages. We, we also see in Revelation chapter 13 that there will be a climactic and universal testing truth, right, over the Sabbath. Uh, in great controversy, it states the Sabbath will be the great test of loyalty, for it is the point of truth, especially controverted, when the final test shall be brought to bear upon men then the line of distinction will be drawn between those who serve God and those who serve him not. Right? So we have this climactic and universal testing truth over the Sabbath. We also have uh, the investigative judgment. In commenting on this, uh, great controversy in the chapter in the Holy of Holies. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of the penitent believers are being removed, From the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin. When the work of investigation shall be ended, when the cases of those who in all ages who have professed to be followers of Christ have been examined and decided then, and not till then, probation will close and the door of mercy will be shut. 
right? So, so the, our, our perspective on what's going to take place at the final events of Earth's history play a huge role in how we live our lives today and how we interpret the events going on today. We talked about the close of probation, uh, the time of trouble, and the second coming. And these are some of the components that we will also cover in our panel discussion later on. I want to move, as we, uh, as we conclude, that, as I mentioned before, the, a worldview can be expressed as a narrative, and it can also be expressed as a cluster of beliefs. So we have, for example, the sanctuary doctrine. Uh, Pastor David Shin um, uh, stated last year in his sermon uh, uh, and made reference to this quote, that the sanctuary doctrine opened to view a complete system of truth connected and harmonious. The sanctuary doctrine certainly plays a huge role in the Adventist understanding of where we are in Earth's history and, and, and our future. A significant component of the Adventist worldview also concerns the restoration of God's image within humanity, uh, what we call the recreation of the physical, the mental, and the spiritual capacities. So when Adam came from the Creator's hand, he bore in his physical, mental, and spiritual nature a likeness to his maker. But by disobedience, of course, this was forfeited. Through sin, the divine likeness was marred and well-nigh obliterated. Man's physical powers were weakened, his mental capacity was lessened, and his spiritual vision was dimmed. Love, the basis of creation and of redemption, is the basis of true education. She goes on to say, to love him, the infinite, the omniscient one, with the whole strength and mind and heart means the highest development of every power. It means that in the whole being, the body, the mind, as well as the soul, the image of God is to be restored. And so uh, a, a huge component of the Adventist worldview incorporates this notion, the restoration of God's image within man. Our worldview is comprehensive, taking into account the entire being. It constitutes more than merely an intellectual understanding. It involves the development of the physical powers, which also impacts our intellectual and spiritual faculties. How many of you um, uh, have heard of the health message or feel that the health message is a vital component of Adventism. Um, and I see, yeah, most of the hands are raised. And certainly, um, I, working at Weimar, I believe that the health message is, is the right arm, right? I don't want to describe it as the right arm of the third angel's message. And it plays a huge role. But I do want to make some qualifications, right? We need to see the health message uh, also as a means and not necessarily as the ends. And I want to uh, uh, share what I mean by that. So it plays a role in the spiritual and develop, spiritual development and Morality. It's not the end as in, 
Uh, it's a checklist that you and I have to be accepted by God. Okay, I'm vegan. Check. I didn't eat cheese. Check. I, I refrain from cooking with oil. Check, right? And, and I think we can become very imbalanced when it comes to the health message. And so to, uh, to an extent, we need to understand the health message in its proper context. And, and so just some statements. Review and Herald, uh, January 25, uh, 1881. She says, let none who profess godliness regard with indifference the health of the body. So it is important. Uh, and she says, and that it will not, and don't think that it will not affect your spirituality. She said, the close sympathy exists between the physical and the moral nature. Your brain, your brain and my brain is the only mode or means by which God communicates to you and to I, right? Or, or to me. And so what we eat, and the exercise, and I need to do a lot more exercise than I'm doing. You can probably see that. But we, what we eat and how we live our life uh, uh, um, uh, impacts our brain. And, and thereby, God, when he communicates with us, it'll be, it'll be clear. It also has a moral dimension. It affects our spirituality. She says, goes on and says this in Councils on Diet and Foods, page 48. Anything that lessens physical strength enfeebles the mind and makes it less capable of discriminating between right and wrong. We become less capable of choosing the good and having less strength of will to do that which we know to be right. And so if you're struggling with sin in your life, if you have struggle, uh, struggle with temptations, it, 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 there's a devotional life that needs to be had, a, a, a prayer life that needs to be had, but we believe in a comprehensive message that also incorporates uh, how we, what we do with our bodies, that also helps us in our moral development in recreating God's image in man. She also talks about health as uh, vital to appreciating and accepting truth. You need clear, energetic mind in order to place the right estimate upon eternal things. How many of you have loved Indian food? I have a humongous weakness for Indian food, right? And the problem with Indian food is that typically when you go to an Indian restaurant, you go when? At lunchtime. Why do you go at lunchtime? Because it's a buffet, right? It's a buffet. And so if you're paying like 8 to $10 for that buffet, you want to be economical, right? You want to you maximize the benefit of your 8 or $10. And by the way, that's not the mindset we should have. Now what happens when you eat everything there is to eat in that Indian buffet, and it's all vegetarian, right? Uh, but it's very, Indian food is also very, very complex, and very, very heavy, right? And, and whenever I think of this quote, I think of Indian food. Because when I eat a ton of Indian food, if I overeat and I fail to be temperate, I can guarantee that you will not have a clear, energetic mind. That is a fact, right? And, and you, will, you won't be able to place the right estimate on eternal things. Why? Because you're going to be sleeping on your couch, Right? 
And so I make it a, a point when, when, I, when, I'm, uh, when I'm going through finals when I was in school where I have things that I really need to uh, use my brain for, I, I avoid Indian restaurants like the plague. And uh, I just don't go there. I don't want to even deal with that temptation. Notice what she says. If you indulge in wrong habits of eating and thereby weaken the intellectual powers, you will not place that high estimate upon salvation and eternal life. By the way, that's one of the ways that the health message serves as the right arm to the gospel message. People can only receive and understand and comprehend those truths if they're eating in a way that allows them to receive it and comprehend it, okay? Um, its role as an entering wedge. How many of you are familiar with your pathways to health? And that's essentially what we're talking about here. When properly conducted, the health work is an entering wedge, making a way for other truths to reach the heart. By the way, I praise God for your pathways to health. It is amazing. How many of you have attended a your pathways to health? Didn't it just bring you to tears? And you're just flat out in awe as you see literally thousands of people uh, being cared for and the tears. It just, it's just an amazing experience. If you have a chance to attend and volunteer, please do so. I also want to qualify it in this way. The health message at the same time, isn't the message. And Ellen White has some very clear statements on this. She says, the health reform is closely connected with the work of the third message, yet it is not the message. Our preachers should teach the health reform, yet they should not make this the leading theme in the place of the message. And so, the reason why I share that, that passage is not to undermine the health message, but for us to have a, a proper perspective and a balanced perspective on the health message. I want to close with this last one that is very dear to my own heart. Uh, this, the, the notion of the freedom of will and the liberty of conscience. And this is not unique to Adventism, but within the great controversy, it, it plays a more nuanced, um, it has more nuanced impact and relevance. And I want to read several quotes and make some comments, and we're going to close. She says, God desires from all his creatures the service of love, homage that springs from an intelligent appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in a forced allegiance, and to all he grants freedom of will that they will render him voluntary service. Furthermore, every human being is created in the image of God, is endowed with a power akin to that of the Creator. Individuality, power to think and to do. It is the work of true education to develop this power. What power? The power to think and to do. To train the youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts and ideas. And I want to close with this. Many, many of us have a, a misguided notion that we need, when we surrender our will to God, we give him our will, and then he makes 
the decisions for us. How many of you ever have thought that or think that currently? That when we surrender our will to him, we say, Lord, would you wake up? Lord, do you want me to wear my green jacket or my black jacket? Lord, please reveal to me what your will is. Okay? How many of you have gone through that before? Does God, does God engage us at that level? And should we engage ourselves with God at that level? It's a, it's a, it's a very important question. And, and, and the reason why I say that, well, let me, let me um, ask you this. When, when God told Adam and Eve, of every tree in the garden, you may freely eat, except this one. So you have all this. Just don't eat this one, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of all these trees, you may freely eat. Did that mean that when Adam and Eve woke up, and they, they woke up and they, and they said, hey, um, uh, let, let's go eat. Oh, Lord, should I eat durian? Or do you want me to eat uh, apple, right? Was that a question that they needed to ask God every morning? Absolutely not. God had already directed them and told them that of these trees you may freely eat. Whether they ate an apple or a pear was not a moral question. I don't want to minimize the fact that we need to ask God uh, for, for areas in our life in terms of his direction and his providence. But it's, it's also dangerous to have this notion that when we surrender our will, that we, we negate or delete what Ellen White says, the, the development of the power to think and to do. Okay, I want to I show you a quote. Um, notice what she says here. The surrender of the will is represented as plucking out the eye or cutting off the hand. By the way, don't do that. It's, it's, he's using symbology there. Our will is to be yielded to him. We surrender our will. The God, our God sanctifies it. Sanctifies our will that we, that we may receive it, receive it again, purified and refined. And as we're in connection with him, right, so linked in sympathy with the divine that he can pour through us the tides of his love and power. And, and so we need to have a balanced understanding, right, and, and balance the notion that God wants us to serve him intelligently with the will that has been sanctified, but, but he also empowers us with that sanctified mind, with the power to think and to do, and to do the things and works that God would have us to do. And I used to, I went through an experience where, where I would say, Lord, do you want me to wear this, this suit or that suit? And, and this was my thought process. This suit is uglier. And so, you know, God wants me to not be you know, look good because that might make me proud. So I'm going to wear the ugly suit that doesn't fit me, right? And you can go through this brand of legalism, right? I call it legalism that will ultimately drive you from the church out of the church. Because 
you're, gonna, you're, go, you're going to have a perception of God as one who controls you, right? God, Satan possesses people. God does not possess people. And, and God works with us, and we can be free in Christ to serve him and love him. And I share that just because I know many, many young, conservative, Bible-believing, spirit-prophecy-believing, mission college graduated, young Adventists struggle with this very thing. And, and ultimately, it drives them to a point where they say, I, I just cannot serve God any longer because it, it burdens me and it brings me more guilt than peace. Go to Jesus. Read the book, Steps to Christ. Read it again, and you will find that in Jesus, you will find true freedom, true liberty that only Jesus Christ can provide. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we conclude. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Adventist message, one that's based on Scripture and we're also uh, and, and the spirit of prophecy. We thank you so much for revelation, for a picture uh, that is painted of you who loves us, who desires our good, that once you transform us and, and recreate us into your image, that you empower us with the ability to think and to do. And of course it will be in line and in harmony with you and your principles as you transformed, as you have transformed our hearts and minds. We thank you, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.